Well, this morning we have Jack and Evan who are going to lead us in the reading of God's Word. The lesson from the epistles. Now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I am persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in on the contrary, I worked harder than them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and, you, and so you believed. The word of the Lord. Please stand for a lesson from the Gospels. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Solomon, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us, the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the, the tomb... They saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See see the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. We're going to begin on this Easter Sunday the way that we begin every week, and that's speaking more directly to the younger ones among us. So kids, I have a question. Do you all know what fake news is? Have you ever heard that term, fake news? Well, I have a little quiz for us this morning. I'm going to say uh, four news headlines, and one of them is not true. One of them is fake news, and you have to guess which one it is. Okay? So four, these are the four. Number one, these are all headlines from the past month. Number one, a hitman hires a hitman who hires a hitman who hires a hitman who hires a hitman who tells the police. Number two, Amsterdam 
they have launched a new ad campaign targeting specifically young British men. And in this ad campaign, they're asking them to stay away from their city. Number three, North Carolina seeks to ban participation trophies for children. And lastly, number four, the Hawaiian airline offers to fund any hobby, hobby imaginable for pilots who join its team in order to cover their pilot shortage. Which of these is fake news? Any idea? All of them. It's number four. Number four. Hawaiian Airlines did not offer that. All the other ones are true. Here's another set of four. This past month, number one. There was a giant 15-foot Dairy Queen spoon stolen, and it was found in the middle of a schoolyard by a man playing Pokemon Go. Number two. Two men escaped from jail using a toothbrush. Later, they were found captured at an IHOP. Number three, there's a new electric scooter startup that will use AI to detect how scared you are while you're riding it. And lastly, number four, there's this company called Mischief, spelled M-S-C-H-F, but they've made a free dating game and simulator that at the same time helps you to prepare your federal taxes. Which of these is fake news? For four, no, there's actually a, ga- a dating app that will help you pay your taxes. Number three, boys in the back got it right. There's no new scooter app. Last one, or last set of four. Number one, a court rules Florida residents can't sell rare tropical fish that end up in pools after hurricanes. So the court said no selling of these fish anymore. Number two, Japan's about to expel a YouTuber from its Senate. They have a YouTuber in its Senate, but... He did not show up for work for seven months, which apparently you're not allowed to do. I really like this one. Number three, parents force son to watch TV all night as punishment for watching too much TV. (laughs) And lastly, number four, have you heard of the metaverse? Well, recent news, a couple just got married in the Taco Bell metaverse. Which of those are fake news? It's number one, no court rule that you can't sell rare tropical fish in pools after hurricanes. Well, these are, I think, a lot of examples of that truism that truth oftentimes is stranger than fiction. But we live in a world that seemingly is dominated by fake news. You can say fake news is false or misleading information, and sometimes it's, sometimes it's funny it's to make us laugh like these examples. But at its most pernicious and dangerous, fake news is intended to deceive, coerce, or manipulate other people. And there are some people today who claim that the resurrection of Jesus is fake news. It's a made-up story for people who are weak, or for people who like to believe in fairy tales, for people who like to have just some deeper purpose in their lives, even if it isn't true. So the question we're going to attempt to answer this morning is, is the resurrection of Jesus fake news? And there's probably no more important question we can ask because if the resurrection is fake news, then it's not just, oh well, you know, we still had a great Easter service. The church still looked beautiful. We felt spiritually uplifted and encouraged by the songs that we sang. We had an enjoyable time with around people that we love. 
No, because if the resurrection is fake news, then the Apostle Paul in the Bible says that Christians of all people are the most to be pitied in the entire world. Because for the Apostle Paul, for the authors of the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus is the heart of our hope and the center of our salvation. So how do we determine if something is fake news? Well, you kind of have to act and think like a detective. Then we like Agatha Christie novels. I love Agatha Christie. There's a famous Belgian detective by the name of Hercule Poirot, and he has a saying that says, you have to use your little gray cells. Meaning when you're a detective, you have to use your mind. You have to think about it. You have to gather all the relevant details and information from trusted sources surrounding the event in question, and then you have to determine what is the most reasonable or plausible explanation that can explain everything else. So this morning, we're going to discuss four different pieces of evidence surrounding the resurrection, and then we're going to ask, what is the most reasonable explanation to explain those four pieces of evidence? So before we jump in, please pray with me as we look into God's word. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for gathering us all together. We do indeed celebrate your resurrection every time that we gather, for it is indeed the heart of our hope and the center of our salvation. But particularly on this morning, as we reflect upon the resurrection of Jesus, may we see that it is not only historical, historically plausible, but is the source of our life and our hope. Remind us, Lord, that without the resurrection, then we are nothing and we have nothing, but that through Jesus' life, death on the cross, and eventual raising again, that you have made us your children. You've given us purpose in our lives. You've given a peace of your presence. And you have filled us with hope, faith, and love now and forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so what are those four pieces of evidence that we're going to look at this morning? Number one, there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth, and he was executed by crucifixion. Number two, his tomb is found empty on the Sunday following that crucifixion. Number three, his followers claim to have seen him alive after he had been crucified. And lastly, number four, there was a notorious persecutor of the church. His name was Paul of Tarsus. And this man becomes a follower of Jesus and a leader in the church. So the four things we're going to look at. And what's really fascinating is that these four pieces of evidence are precisely what the earliest Christians declared to be the most fundamental truths of their faith. And they reflected in what most scholars and interpreters considered to be the earliest creed of the church. So we, we read at this church, we read the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. And that's a way of reminding ourselves and one another what it is that Christians believe. And most people think that the Apostles' Creed was probably written maybe a few hundred years after Jesus died and was resurrected. But the earliest creed that's reflected here in the Bible, the reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, most scholars believe that this was written, not written a few hundred years after Jesus, but a few years after Jesus. Meaning, the very first and earliest Christians, what they wanted to remember about Jesus is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 3 through 8. And this is what it says. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, 
that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Verse 8, last of all, he appeared to me, one untimely born. So those four facts that I read are all reflected in the earliest creed, the earliest beliefs of the church. So number one, a man named Jesus of Nazareth, he's executed by crucifixion. See this in verse 3. For I deliver to you of first importance, the very most important thing you must know, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. You see, the most uncontroversial fact in the entire New Testament is that Jesus of Nazareth was executed on a cross by the Roman authorities. It's the event that's most widely attested in Jesus' entire life. It's recorded in each of the four Gospels as well as the other books in the New Testament, like Acts, all of Paul's letters, Hebrews, 1 Peter, Revelation. Outside of the Bible, early Christian writings in the first hundred years after Jesus' death. You might have heard of these before. Books like 1 Clement, the Epistle of Barnabas, Polycarp's letters, all of them reference Jesus' crucifixion. What this says is that for the early Christians, they're obsessed about Jesus' death. They can't stop talking about it. Even non-Christian authors in the ancient world, people like Josephus, a Jewish historian, Tacitus, a Roman civil servant, they mentioned Jesus' death also by crucifixion. So in the ancient sources, in the Bible, outside the Bible, Christian, non-Christian, all of them are in agreement. There's a man named Jesus, and he really was crucified. Historically, there's not a single doubt about that. Not only that, but it's extremely unlikely that early Christians would have invented this story that their Savior was an executed criminal. See, many of us are so familiar with the story that it's lost its shock factor for us. But one thing that we're going to come back to time and time again is no one would have written the story in the Gospels the way it was written unless it was true. The greatest hindrance for an ancient people to accept the gospel of Jesus would have been the idea that someone who was crucified could in some way be a savior worth following and trusting in. Even one famous agnostic scholar, so not a Christian, this man has spent most of his life actually discrediting or attempting to discredit what the Bible says. Even he acknowledges this fact. He writes this, It's hard today to understand just how offensive the idea of a crucified Messiah would have been to the first century Jews. Since no one would have made up the idea of a crucified Messiah, Jesus must have really existed, he must really have claimed to be the Messiah, and he must really have been crucified. So one thing that we have no reason to doubt in the Bible, in the Christian story, is that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth, executed by crucifixion by Roman authorities approximately 2,000 years ago. Number two, his tomb was found empty on the Sunday following his crucifixion. Verse four, from, or for, verse 4 from 1 Corinthians 15, he was buried and then he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Like Jesus' death by crucifixion, the story of the temp- empty tomb is recorded in all the Gospels. And our passage at the end of the Mark that was read for us, Mark 16, 1 through 8, even though it's very brief, it's actually evidence for the trustworthiness of the story. Because 
just like with the crucifixion, no one would have intentionally decided to have written the story this way unless it actually did happen. And what was so surprising about this story is the fact that women found the empty tomb. Now, that might not seem that surprising to us, but here what one author writes concerning this fact that it was women who found the empty tomb. He writes, The strongest piece of evidence in favor of the historicity of the empty tomb is the report that it was discovered by women. This detail might not strike us as odd, but it's surprising given the low status of women in the first century. For example, there's a first century historian, the same man, Josephus. He claims that Jewish law expressed the following sentiment regarding the reliability of women. Let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. How does that sound to you? Are you, are you offended by that? Josephus says you cannot trust a woman's testimony because of their boldness and their levity. But the very reason why we consider that such a ludicrous statement today is because of Christianity. It's the Christian belief in the equality and dignity of all people, men and women, that helps us to see how crazy that idea was back then. In fact, historians suggest that one of the reasons why the early Christian faith was so attractive and so appealing to women in particular was because in the church they received an acceptance and a status that was denied to them in greater society. If the early Christians were inventing the gospel story like out of whole cloth, they never would have selected women as the people to find the empty tomb. But they did. Other historical details corroborate the story of the empty tomb. All the gospels claim that Jesus was buried by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. You know, Jesus didn't have any money. Tombs back then were very expensive, but there was a wealthy man named Joseph who allowed Jesus to be buried in his tomb. But you must know that Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the Jewish religious court that had actually tried, convicted, and found Jesus to be guilty. It seems unlikely then that early Christians would have invented this detail about a prominent figure in the very court that tried and convicted Jesus. Unless it were true. Not only that, but the public launch of the Jesus movement is widely considered to to be what has become known as the day of Pentecost. So Jesus raised from the dead. He goes back into heaven. And the disciples, they don't know what to do. And they're waiting 40, 50 days until on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and this launches the public ministry of the disciples in declaring to all peoples that Jesus is the Messiah raised from the dead. But it was only 50 days after his death. If the tomb wasn't empty, wouldn't it have been so easy for skeptics back then, to just go to the tomb and say, prove it. Prove the tomb is empty. But no one could do that because the tomb actually was empty. In fact, we're told in the Bible in Matthew chapter 28 that all of Christianity's opponents accepted the empty tomb and they tried to make up a story to explain it. Matthew 28 While they're going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, hush money, and they said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away that while you were asleep. 
If this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread even to this day. So everyone acknowledges that the tomb is empty. And they say, just make up this story. Say you were sleeping and that his disciples came while you were sleeping and took the body away. And that's why the tomb is empty. But you see the problem with this grave robber theory? The problem with the grave robber theory is that lives don't change because you steal a body from a grave. No one's life changes because of an empty tomb, especially if you're the one that makes it empty. But the Gospels and the beginning of the book of Acts and all throughout the New Testament, they record that the disciples, they really saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. They touched him. They spent time with him. They ate with him. They learned from him. At the very end of his life, they're commissioned by, them, by him to go out into all the world to make disciples and followers of Jesus. You see, your life doesn't change because of an empty tomb. It changes because of an encounter with the risen Jesus. Which brings us to our third point. Number three. Jesus' followers claimed to have seen him after he had been executed. Verses five to seven. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus. And then he appeared to all the apostles. So maybe you can rationally believe that one person, maybe Peter, if you remember Peter is one of Jesus' closest disciples, maybe you can believe that Peter was genuinely crazy. Maybe he couldn't just handle the fact that the person he had placed all of his hopes and dreams on, one of his closest friends, the companion they had spent the past three years with, he's just died. And he's become unhinged. He's delusional. Convinced that Jesus is is not dead anymore. Maybe you could possibly believe that there's some sort of like groupthink, some sort of mass hysteria, so that you might possibly convince yourself that not only Peter, but actually all the disciples... All of Jesus' friends somehow are convinced that Jesus has raised from the dead. But what about 500 people? Could 500 people all be deluded into thinking that they see Jesus even after he has been raised from the dead? And what especially makes their testimony trustworthy, as I alluded to before, is their willingness to sacrifice their lives for this belief. Tradition records that 11 out of the 12 apostles will give their very lives for the belief in Jesus' resurrection, choosing to die as martyrs as they share about Jesus to others all over the world. Would people knowingly do that for something they know to be a lie? Here's a thought experiment. If you are God, imagine you're God, how would you choose to tell people about Jesus? Let's say for the purpose of this thought experiment that Jesus was executed on a recent Friday in the not-too-distant past and was raised from the dead three days later on a Sunday morning. But let's say it happened far away from us. We're here in Austin, Texas, and it happens on the outskirts of Jerusalem. What would make you believe that this man, Jesus, had been raised from the dead? What if you read it online? You read a story online that this man Jesus was raised from the dead, but we all know you can't read everything you believe online. It's full of fake news. What if you saw a video? 
What if you saw a video of Jesus supposedly walking around? Well, I don't know about you, but have you seen all of these just crazy things they're able to do with computers these days? AI-generated things, of, things that look completely true and real, but are actually false and fake. But what if you had a friend? What if you knew a friend in Jerusalem who could confirm to you all of the details? Who told you that she saw Jesus crucified, she saw the empty tomb where he had been buried, and that she and others who knew him also saw him alive and actually spent time with him? You see, even with all of our technological advances, the formula for learning about Jesus remains unchanged for thousands and thousands of years. What did Paul say at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3? For I, Paul, delivered to you what I also received. Paul received the message, and he shared it with others. Even at the end of his life and ministry, he'll say the same things to his young protege, Timothy. So toward the end of his life, Paul's getting older. He knows he's about to die. And he sends letters to his protege, Timothy. And he says this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will then be able to teach others also. See, that's the way that God has designed his message to always go forth. You receive it, and then you pass it on to others. The gospel is proclaimed by faithful people sharing it with others, and the disciples proclaim the reality of Jesus' resurrection because they see and spend time with him after he's raised from the dead. And it's not only the disciples. Our fourth and final point is that the notorious opponent of the church, Paul of Tarsus, he becomes a follower of Jesus himself. Verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus also appeared to me. Now, verse 8, you should know, is probably not part of the early creed of the church. But Paul uses the creed as a way of introducing himself into the story. For he is just the last of the many cast of unexpected characters in the gospel story, perhaps the most unexpected of all. Paul refers to himself as the persecutor of the church. And he stands witness at the stoning of the first recorded Christian martyr, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7. Right, so he said that these disciples who saw Jesus alive, that they're willing to give their lives for him. Well, the first one who does that is this man named Stephen. Stephen testifies of the risen Savior, Jesus, and he's killed for bearing witness. And the Bible tells us that this man, Saul, who later becomes Paul, was standing watching. What possible explanation can there be for Saul's radical life change in which the one who persecutes the church now becomes the one willing to do whatever it takes for its good? Listen to what Paul, how Paul describes all the things that he goes through in his life, in his mission to tell other people about Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 says this, Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me for my anxiety for all the churches. 
This is the life that Paul chose to live. What could possibly compel Paul to leave Judaism, an ancient and respected religion, which at least had some protections under Roman law and authority? What could possibly compel Paul to abandon his rising career as a Pharisee, his growing influence, because the Bible tells us that he studied under the leading Pharisee of his day? What could compel him to throw that all away? and to join with the Christians. Well, we're told that it's an encounter like the disciples with the risen Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So Luke, the author of Acts, wants to make it very clear. Paul did not have like this gradual turning to Jesus. He says, at the very moment... When Paul, at this time Saul, he was still breathing threats and murder against the followers of Jesus. He went to a high priest. He asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is what they called followers of Jesus back then, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Right? So he's going on a witch hunt, looking for any Christians who might be hiding. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And from that moment on, Saul's life is radically and completely changed. So we look at those four pieces of evidence. Number one, a man named Jesus of Nazareth is crucified. Number two, his tomb is found empty on the Sunday morning following his resurrection. Number three, his followers claim to have seen him alive after he'd been executed. And number four, the notorious persecutor of the church, this man named Paul of Tarsus, he instead becomes its greatest advocate and champion. Now, what is the most plausible historical explanation for these four points of evidence? It's that Jesus really did rise from the dead. He really did appear to these people. And these lives really were changed. The resurrection of Jesus is not fake news. And now, as we conclude, we must all ask, what are we going to do then with this news? Imagine going to the doctor and imagine telling you, your, your doctor telling you that you have something like dangerously high blood pressure. Now, if you don't make some serious and significant changes in your life, then there's a good chance that your life's going to end prematurely. What would you do with that kind of news? Would you say, thanks, Doc. Appreciate you telling me this. You go home, continue living your life the same way that you've always done. No, of course not. What do you do with that kind of news? You do, you do whatever it takes You take every single medicine that you're prescribed. You change your diet. You change your exercise. You walk or you bike instead of driving. You try to avoid stressful situations. You change the very habits and practices of your life because you've received this news. And it's the same way, even more so, with the news of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is not fake news, but it's news that demands a response and forces us to change the very way that we live our lives. So this morning we conclude with the true news, what the Bible calls good news. Life-changing, world-changing, good news. And I have, again, four points for you. Number one, God created the world. 
He created the world and everything in it as an extension, a reflection of his goodness, truth, and beauty. And he created us to enjoy it, to enjoy the world that he made. But he also created us as stewards of that world. Meaning a steward is someone who takes care of something that doesn't belong to them. We take care of it on behalf of someone else. So God made the world good for us as stewards. But number two, yes, we were created to be stewards, but instead we chose to become sinners. One way of understanding sin is we treat good things, God's good created world that he made for us, we treat God's good thing as ultimate things. And that's what the Bible calls idolatry. Idolatry is when we put anything above or in the place of God. And one way of diagnosing whether we have done that is by asking ourselves and answering one question. That question is, are you disappointed? Or are you devastated? When things in your life don't turn out the way that you desire, are you disappointed? Or are you devastated? When you get passed up for that promotion when you're overworked and underappreciated, when that bonus check you've been slaving away for isn't quite as big as you had hoped, when that deal falls through, how do you respond? Are you disappointed? Or are you devastated? Kids, if that someone that you've had a crush on finds out that you like him or her but doesn't feel the same way about you, are you disappointed? Are you devastated? If you don't get into that school, if you don't make that sports team, if everyone seems to be in a happier marriage than you or have a nicer house than you, if your children are making poor life decisions that you seemingly have no control over, you feel powerless, at those times, are you disappointed? Are you devastated? You see, if you're a steward, then those things may be disappointing in your life, but they're not devastating. If, however, you have taken the good things that God has given us in this life and you have made them ultimate things, if you're seeking for joy and significance and satisfaction through things like money, status, power, your beauty or your body, your reputation or your kid's reputation, then when those things are threatened or taken away, you aren't just disappointed. You're devastated. So this morning as we reflect upon our lives, are you disappointed or are you devastated? But the good news is that whichever is true of you, whether you're disappointed, whether you're devastated, God gives us good news for this morning. Number three, we're all sinners, we're all idolaters, we're all people who have placed created things in ourselves over and above and against God. And in doing so, in doing so we've made a real mess of this world. Right? God made this world good and beautiful. But all of us would readily acknowledge that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to redeem it and to make all things new. God sent his son into the world not only to show you a better way to live, but to live for you and to, li- and to die for you. And yes, on this Easter Sunday morning, to be raised for you. And number four, if by faith you acknowledge that you cannot save yourself, And instead, you trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross in your place, his death for your death, his life for your life, then you can be saved and receive true eternal life. 
in him now and forever. Amen. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 says this, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you this morning that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not indeed fake news, but is good news for us sinners, idolaters, rebellious against your word, your will, and your ways. Help us to honestly reflect upon the many ways in which we have fallen short of the standard which you have set for us. But instead of being wearied and overcome, burdened by our sin, help us to see the glorious death and resurrection of Jesus this morning. Give us a faith that trusts in him and hopes in him, that sees the perfect life that he lived for us, and somehow believes that when you look upon us, you see not our imperfections, but you see the holiness and the glory of Christ, and that in him and by his spirit, we might truly live lives that are pleasing to you. I thank so much for this church family that you've given us. May we love and encourage one another toward that end. May we always be hopeful for one another, expectant for one another, encouraging to know one another, seeking to love and challenge one another to greater faithfulness and good works. We thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us on your own, but you've given us a wonderful Savior whose name is Christ the Messiah. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.